0: Hello and welcome to GovGuys, a podcast brought to you by two teachers who treat Supreme Court nominations like the
1: Super Bowl. I'm Mr. Crowder. And I'm Mr. Hertzler. Today we're exploring the U.S. judicial system and especially the Supreme Court. Crowder, are you excited? Um, I, I refuse to answer rhetorical questions.
0: What? In the past, uh, other podcast hosts may have been excited about such things, Uh, and and it's always wise to look at precedent when you're making a rational decision uh, when when judging these types of questions.
1: Crowder, what is going on? Why don't you just answer the question? Are you excited about today?
0: My my personal views don't have anything to do with how I would decide to answer this question.
1: Uh, Okay, well, this has been quite the experience. Uh, Let's just go ahead and get started today.
0: When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to
1: we, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union.
0: Government of the people, by
1: the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Welcome to the Gub Guys Podcast, Episode 5 The Good, the Bad, the Ugly, all about the judicial branch.
0: Since I've now been confirmed as a podcast co-host, I can definitely say I'm excited for this episode. The Supreme Court is perhaps the most mysterious of the three branches. While our founding fathers clearly had an idea what they wanted the Congress to look like, a pretty good idea what they wanted the executive branch to look like, it seems almost as if the judicial branch is somewhat of an afterthought.
1: Yeah, when you look at the Constitution, it seems as if the framers of the Constitution didn't think the judicial branch would really be important in the long run. It's one of the shortest articles of the Constitution, by far shorter than Article 1, which created the legislature, and Article 2, which created the executive. And a fair amount of what the court actually does isn't even written into the Constitution.
0: Yeah, Article 3 of the Constitution has three sections. The first says three things that matter. First, there will be a Supreme Court. Straight to the point. Very good. (laughs) Second, Congress can set up other, quote, inferior courts. And third... Judges of all federal courts serve for, quote, good behavior, which largely we can interpret to mean that judges serve for life. The second section is a bit more substantial. It describes situations in which the court can make judgments. And more specifically, it describes when the Supreme Court would have original jurisdiction and appellate jurisdiction. Ertzar, what's the difference between original and appellate jurisdiction?
1: Yeah, original jurisdiction just means that the court case starts at the Supreme Court that they are the first, and because the Supreme Court is hearing it first, they're going to be the only court to hear the case. Um, One to 3% of all total cases start at the Supreme Court level. The Supreme Court has basically first dibs at hearing and making a ruling. An appellate case is basically when the Supreme Court is ruling on the decisions made at a lower level. They aren't the first court to hear the case. Normally, they'll start at the district level, the district-state level, and it'll work its way up if the decision isn't clear or they just feel like they need to have another set of eyes looking at the case. And the so-called inferior courts,
0: as outlined by the Constitution that Hertzler just kind of alluded to, they were created by the Judiciary Act of 1789. This set up for courts is a three-tiered system. States also have created their own court systems, and generally they're similar to the structure of the federal level, but we're not going to be focusing on those right now. Working our way up at the federal court system consists of the district court, the appellate court, and the Supreme Court. District courts were established throughout the country. The goal was to have at least one district court in each state. Since North Carolina and Rhode Island had not yet ratified the Constitution when this bill was passed into law, 13 original jurisdictions were created around the remaining 11 states, including two in Virginia and two in Massachusetts, by far the largest states at the time. Today, there are 94 districts across our 50 states. This
1: is the starting point for virtually every federal trial. At the district level, there are a few special courts designed for specific types of cases. For example, each district has a bankruptcy court, which specializes in those types of cases. There are also district cases that claim original jurisdiction for taxes, federal claims, and international trade. But beyond that, district courts hear nearly 350,000 cases a year for all types of issues, including criminal and civil suits under the federal law. Criminal cases are when a law has potentially been broken. Usually the state or the United States are the plaintiffs in these cases, as they are the ones bringing the charges. Civil suits are usually for damages, breach of contract, things like that. The law isn't necessarily broken in these cases, but civil cases are meant to solve disputes between people. Normally you see this, a good example would be if you watch, you know, midday TV and you're watching an episode of Judge Judy. For certain instances, you might have both types of trials. Let's say someone is robbed and beaten the defendant, would be charged with assault and battery, which are crimes, but the person who attacked might also sue for damages from their injuries.
0: Yeah, so let's say this trial ends. If one side or another is not happy with the result, they feel that the process of the trial or decision itself is problematic, they have a way to appeal. You know, they have the right to appeal these trials, and they will write and submit what's known as a brief to the U.S. Court of Appeals. And there are courts of appeals nationwide divided into 12 regional circuits and the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, which uh, brings us to 13 circuits total. Each of these courts have appellate jurisdiction to examine cases from district levels. Together, these circuit courts hear upwards of 60,000 cases a year. Obviously, that's a huge departure from the 350,000 cases that district courts hear.
1: That's because not every single request for appeals gets approved. In most cases, the appeals courts affirms the decision from the district level. That is, they say the law was fairly and correctly applied. If that's the case, the decision from the district court stands. That's generally what happens with most cases. But in the instance that the appellate courts decide there is a merit to hear the case again, each side will come to present oral arguments to the new judges. After hearing the case again, the appellate court can then choose to affirm the original jurisdiction, or in some cases, they may choose to reverse the decision. And finally, we have the Supreme Court
0: of the United States. In one Supreme Court term, which starts on the first Monday of October and generally ends late June, possibly July, they hear around 100 cases, sometimes more, sometimes less. And as we stated earlier, most of these cases are heard with appellate jurisdiction. That is, cases have been heard at the district and circuit level first. And finally, they've made their way to the Supreme Court. Another possible path to the Supreme Court is through state courts. If a state gets to the state Supreme Court level, it could theoretically still be appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. In order for a case to get to the Supreme Court, it really has to be special. Only around 1% of all cases filed with the Supreme Court are actually heard. In most cases, the Supreme Court affirms the decisions of lower courts.
1: So let's say there's a very special case making its way through the court system from North Carolina. The first stop would be at the district level, and there are three possible locations where this court case could be heard. It can be heard in the Western District, the Eastern District, or the Middle District. If that case is successfully appealed, it will be passed to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, and the trials then sent to Richmond, Virginia. If the plaintiff or defendant wishes to appeal, they would submit a request to the Supreme Court justice that oversees that circuit. For the Fourth Circuit, it's actually Chief Justice John Roberts. John Roberts would take this case to the associate justices, and they would debate the merits of the brief and decide whether or not to hear that case at the Supreme Court level.
0: Yeah, and it takes four justices signing on for the Supreme Court to hear a case. Four out of nine have to decide that the case has merit to be heard, and this is sometimes referred to as the rule of four. And if that's the case, the Supreme Court will issue a writ of certiorari. This orders lower courts to send up the case and the details for review. Only appeals cases with a writ of certiorari are heard, in addition to any of the rare original jurisdiction cases we discussed earlier in the episode. At this time, the petitioner, which is the party that issued the request for the writ of certiorari, is meant to prepare a brief outlining the legal arguments for their case to the court. The other party, called the respondent, is also asked to respond in a brief of their own. The U.S. government may also choose to issue a brief, especially if anything in the case could potentially disrupt U.S. law. This is also the time which is ideal for the submission of amicus curiae, or friends
1: of the court briefs. Hertzler, what are friends of the court briefs? Friends of the court briefs basically is just people who have an outside influence on the outcome uh, of a case. Most of the time... These come from individuals or specific interest groups that have some kind of opinion or backing of how the case is going to go. So they can, they can write up their own brief to send in to the judges. They can even give oral testimony to the judges to to state their opinions on how they feel the case should go.
0: Yeah, and and while these friends of the court briefs aren't necessarily supposed to change anything regarding the outcome— you can definitely get a good vibe as to like how interested the general public is in these cases. Ninety percent of Supreme Court cases receive at least one friend of the court brief, uh, but some, I would imagine, like let's say you know abortion debates uh, or immigration, things of really hot button issues, are going to have many more of these interest groups and individuals writing in with their own reasons for why the court should take it up and
1: rule one way or another. Yeah, everybody has to have their two cents in there.
0: They get to the stage where they've accepted the case, and then it's finally time to hear the case. Oral arguments before the Supreme Court are scheduled, and you get only one hour of time to actually argue the case, and that's 30 minutes per side. At this point in time, it is fair to note that the Supreme Court justices have reviewed the case extensively. They know what the merits of the case are. Most of this time is actually spent answering specific questions from the justices, and justices might ask a bunch of questions or they might not ask that many. This is not the time where they really are meant to kind of go in and rehash the case, and oftentimes they're just answering questions from the justices throughout this time period where when they're presenting their case to the court. And just on that note, if one of the parties present at the Supreme Court is meant to represent the United States, the Solicitor General argues the case on the government's behalf. The Solicitor General is important because they're basically the number two lawyer in the country, and they're the second most important person in the Department of Justice behind the Attorney General. Now, when it comes time for the Supreme Court to make a decision on the case, they meet a couple of times per week in the middle of all these cases to basically discuss how we're feeling about things throughout the time. And Holdings decisions, they're typically issued in May or June, so late in a Supreme Court term. And during much of that time, they're discussing cases on and off. And you see pretty early on, justices kind of falling into one camp or another. And this is all behind closed doors. So a lot of this kind of has to be interpreted based on the decisions that are written down later on. But in short, as certain justices kind of fall one way or the other on the decision, they may assign a justice to write an opinion about the case that other justices will sign on. And in some cases, all the justices agree. And these are known as unanimous decisions. Typically, these are much quicker getting out. You might see unanimous decisions as early as, you know, December or January. But in most cases, there is a terror in the Supreme Court and you're going to have a 5-4 vote if it's really tight, uh, or 6-3 or 7-2. Uh, and and in those cases, you know, it takes a little bit more time for the court to come to their decisions and to issue uh, what their are holding is. Cases that are 5-4 are usually issued at the last moment, uh, right before their term comes to an end.
1: Yeah, in all cases, there are basically three decisions. Um, that the Supreme Court can come up with. Um, So let's say Crowder said it best. Let's say our court case ended 5-4. So the five would be our majority, the majority opinion, the ones that basically change the ruling in the case. I mean, you you have winners and losers. This is the the winning side. Um, The majority opinion uh, will then be written by one of the chief justices, that'll be signed off on and it'll basically describe why they ruled the way they did, what constitutional amendment or, or clause that did that, that they use to either uphold or reverse a decision. And, and so, so the five is the majority. Now there's a, there's a small group that can also be a part of the majority called the concurring opinion. These judges, justices will agree with the five, but their understanding or their reasoning behind agreeing with the five might differ slightly. They might use a different constitutional amend, amendment or clause to, to understand their backing on the case. So again, they're a part of the majority, but they just have different opinions. And then finally, you have the four, which is known as the dissenting opinion. And the dissenting opinion is very similar to majority, except they're giving their reasoning why they voted the opposite of the majority. It's important that that these decisions are written um, because we're going to talk about it a little bit later, but they use these decisions in the future to help rule on future cases. Even the dissenting opinion can be important um, because they might get a case similar that applies to the dissenting opinion and then the Supreme Court can use that that research and that view those viewpoints to maybe rule a different way on a different case.
0: Yeah. So just to real, real quick hit those again. You know, majority opinions are issued by justices to represent their logic for deciding on, you know, who would win this court decision. Concurring opinions agree with the majority and in part for voting for it, but they agree for different reasons. And dissenting opinions are people who disagree with the overall decision of the court. You know, they're on the quote unquote losing side of, of this decision, but they're still going to express with a lot of logic why they feel the way they do. Now, Hertzler, we talked about the Supreme Court itself, and we talked about maybe some of the stakes that stand with the Supreme Court being final in, in making a lot of decisions.
1: So how do people get on the Supreme Court to begin with? It's an interesting idea of how they get in there, but but we've talked about it several times, especially when we talked about the executive branch, that the president is the one that is going to appoint the Supreme Court justices into their position. And- most of the time, there's a little bit of thought before this that the President has a short list of Supreme Court justices that they will they will carry with them just in case there's an opportunity to appoint someone. and they will go through what is known as the vetting process, where the executive branch will will use their many valuable resources to to look at the the, the Supreme Court candidate that they are wanting to put in. He'll be investigated by the FBI. He'll be looked over by the president's chief of staff. And if nothing is very sketchy in this person's past, uh, then then they will be announced and and sent over to the Senate for the second process of this. Yeah, I mean, there's
0: there's kind of a joke that goes around
1: to this, but the vetting process really
0: does dive into your history, tries to air out any potential dirty laundry, so to speak, that you may have. You know, have you ever had a dog uh, poop in somebody's yard and you never picked it up? Right. Like these are things that they're going to find out about. Uh, And so it's it's an enormous process for naming a federal judge. And, And just while we're on that note. Hertzler and I are going to be a little biased talking about the Supreme Court today, but the vetting process, the confirmation process, this is done for all federal judges. There are 870 appointments nationwide at the federal level, be it district, appellate or Supreme Court, 870 total positions that at certain times will need to be filled. And so this confirmation process. So we're talking about happens for every single one of them, but obviously with the Supreme Court, the stakes are much higher. So while we're focused on the Supreme Court, you do have to keep this in mind that this is true for all federal judges. Uh, So yes, the vetting process, the executive branch wants to make sure that their picks, their choices for the Supreme Court or for any federal court aren't going to kind of come up as, as bad choices, right? They want to absolutely... No surprises, no surprises. They want to hit it out of the park, making sure their choice is not controversial in any other way than maybe their their politics, which we'll get into, you know, outside of that, you want to make sure your choice is solid. And and you're going to do this formal ceremony where you announce your picks. And from that point, there's a lot of reaction in the public spheres uh, and, and private spheres about what what this pick could mean for the Supreme Court. But that's not the that's not really the start or the end of it at this point in time the legislative branch goes
1: to work yeah and you get sent to the senate where the senate will then basically grill you you might be asked political questions what's your viewpoint on different issues all right and then so it's basically a big job interview that you're doing in front of the whole senate
0: the senate judiciary committee is the one that is going to hear testimony from the Supreme Court nominee, even before we get there, there's a period called investigation where people on the Senate Judiciary Committee who are favorable or also not favorable of you being a choice for a court are going to look into your past in a very similar way to what, you know, the president did with the vetting process. But even more so, they're going to look at your decisions. They're going to try to get inside your head and figure out what type of judge you're going to be. Uh, we're going to get more into that in just a minute, but by the time you even walk up before the Senate, it's usually a couple weeks later. They have done a deep dive into your history uh, from a political standpoint, from a you know your your standpoint as a judge. So they have a good idea how you might rule in certain really high-profile cases. And as Hertzler mentioned. Once it gets to the point of this big televised event, you have Supreme Court nominees go in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee for literally hours on end, answering questions about or, or sometimes really not answering questions about how they'd rule in cases, their judicial philosophy, and so on and so forth. So Hertzler, why is this process so important?
1: Why is it so high stakes? Well, because, again, presidents don't really get to a point many Supreme court justices and when they do you're appointing somebody for a really long time because as we we've talked about, there's only three ways that you really, you know, stop being a Supreme court justice. You either die, you can choose to retire. If you feel like you, you're, you've done your, your, your diligence at, at the Supreme court and you feel like it's time to pass the torch on to somebody else, you can decide to retire or you can be impeached. Supreme Court justice can be impeached just like the president can be um it's not happened many times um only one Supreme Court justice has ever been impeached never removed so again you are putting this person in there for what could be a long time especially if they're they're a younger person so it is important that you really analyze what this person's gonna be able to do when they get in the Supreme Court You brought up a really important idea about how the Supreme
0: court picks have gotten younger and younger. And again, that, that's very purposeful. You have a judge who is not elected. They have a lifetime appointment. If you name somebody who's 50 years old, you might have them on the court for 30, 35 years. And even long after you as a president or you as a Senator might be gone, your impact of naming or allowing that person to be on the Supreme Court is going to have a permanent fixture on American history, especially when you're talking about implementation of public policy and uh, application of law and the Constitution. That 30 some years is going to long outlast the impacts of most presidents.
1: yeah, it's a it's a legacy thing almost and you want your legacy to be, you know kept with your decisions.
0: Yeah, and, and as we're talking about Supreme Court justices, it's it's become even more critical, seemingly, in the past, let's say, 40 years, 50 years, especially if we're talking about kind of this post-Roe v. Wade world, you know, which was decided in the early 70s. It seems like the decisions for Supreme Court have been even more partisan, even more significant, because if you look at roll call votes for the Supreme Court justices, they weren't always unanimous, but it was pretty like one-sided. You know, you have votes of like 90 to 10, 70 to 30, things like that. And that's just not the case anymore. Most Supreme Court cases today and most Supreme Court nominees today pass on partisan lines for the most part. And it's like, what, Katanji Brown-Jackson, I think I saw, is 53, 47. You know, uh, the Trump nominees were all pretty close to 50, 50 type marks, the process for naming Supreme Court justices has become even more political over time. And you have specific times when interest groups and political parties really try to tear down and dissuade the president from naming a controversial partisan choice. Hertzler, give us a little bit of background about Robert Bork and why he matters today.
1: Well, Robert Bork was an interesting figure, him, you know, but but the the thing about him is there was a lot of interest groups that didn't like his appointment. And these, these interest groups have a lot of say when it comes to how the Senate votes for Supreme Court justices.
0: Yeah, this is in the late 80s. And, and Robert Bork did have a questionable track record, perhaps you could say, for, you know, civil rights cases. You know, that was really one of the big things that uh, Democrats and and interest groups that wrote into the Senate Judiciary Committee definitely were concerned about. And as a result of it, you almost have this, this hugely organized and deliberate effort to keep Robert Bork from getting the nomination. He gets out of the Senate Judiciary Committee, really close partisan vote. He ends up getting voted down. I think it's 58 to 42 in his confirmation And so he gets rejected. And really, ever since Bork in the late 80s, there have been deliberate processes from both political parties to essentially tear down and destroy Supreme Court picks so that you have somebody who's maybe named who's more moderate than the president's original choice. And this whole idea of organizing yourself to try to get a Supreme Court nomination rejected is called getting Borked which is by far my favorite AP government term. When you're watching these Supreme Court nominations uh, in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee, oftentimes, as I started this whole podcast, they don't really answer questions. They kind of dodge questions. They, they refer to most things like these are hypotheticals or these are rhetorical questions I can't really answer. A lot of them say things like, you know, we you have to honor precedent. You have to look at what the court's done in the past. They, they say these very basic things that don't end up really answering the question at all. And oftentimes, probably I would, I would go off to say the private meetings that the Supreme Court nominations have with the senators is probably far more productive than the ones that are aired on national television.
1: Yeah, it's kind of sad how you we start using some of these tactics to, you know, great picks, but because they're not with the right party or the right viewpoint that we're denying them a job that, you know, maybe they'd be really good at. And, you know, hopefully we can move forward in, in politics.
0: I, I was just mentioning how oftentimes you try to get the nominee to say something, you know, how they're going to rule in certain circumstances, or perhaps you just try to get them to gaff to say something that's so outrageous that they have to just withdraw their nomination the next day. Right. That type of thing. But some of the things that they might try to figure out through careful questioning
1: is what their judicial philosophy is. Yeah, basically, their judicial philosophy is how they're going to rule on cases. And, and there's two schools of thought with when it comes to that. There's judicial activism which is using the Supreme Court to make changes and and to progress society moving forward. They they think about the people now. They think about the events going on now, and they'll make decisions based on the idea that the Constitution is 270-odd years old and that it needs to be adapted and changed. The second idea is judicial restraint. And if if there are justices that, likes the idea of judicial restraint. They are trying to basically make court decisions based on tradition. They are using it to use old uh, old rulings to make their decisions. And they they only follow the constitutions very strictly. They, they don't want the constitution to change. They don't think it should be adapted and, uh, you know, modified. They think that this is what the founding fathers meant. This is what they said. This is how we're going to see things.
0: Yeah, that second group are known as uh, strict constructionists or kind of a newer term or originalists. Those are the folks who say constitution is, you know, effectively this this dead document. We have to read it as it should have been understood, you know, 250 years ago. This is not a time to really take a look at it with, with really loosey-goosey understandings of things. Uh, And and if we are to break down things, strict constructionists and originalists tend to be more conservative justices versus the justices that kind of see the Constitution as a living document that can be interpreted differently over time. Those tend to be more liberal justices. And obviously you have justices that kind of fall in the middle of these two ideas as well. And the whole idea of judicial activism versus judicial restraint, these are words that are also thrown around frequently. Now, it, it is fair to say that living document people are probably more likely to be judicial activists uh, and strict constructionists or originalists are more likely to be the people who practice judicial restraint. But, you know, that's not always the case. And in some cases, I think it's perfectly fair to say, regardless of where you are on the political spectrum, that judicial activism has been useful in the past because, you know, you look at a, a decision like the Dred Scott decision. If you never had a Supreme court case that really, overturned anything, you'd still have institutions of slavery being supported by the Supreme Court, or you'd still have decisions like Plessy, which allowed segregation in, in public spaces. Without judicial activism somewhere along the line, I, I think you do have a fairly backward society if you're only relying on old school decisions.
1: Yeah, because the old school decisions was judicial activism. Even cases like, you know, Gibbons versus Ogden. Um, where you are establishing this idea of, of the Commerce Clause and, and and making sure that the government, everybody understands that the federal government is the one that controls this issue.
0: Yeah, and, and so sometimes judicial activism gets a rap of, of legislating from the bench, which in and of itself might be fair. Uh, in some cases, because you have had Supreme Court cases that have effectively changed the law of this of this country. And, you know, one, one that kind of comes to mind is uh, Obergefell, which is the, the same-sex marriage case. And, and by ruling that same-sex marriage could be legalized, the Supreme Court effectively overturns, uh, I don't know the exact number, but dozens of statewide laws that had otherwise outlawed it. But you could also argue that in the Dobbs decision, the Supreme court had effectively changed what was understood by many to be settled law in the country. So, you know, the the very labeling of judicial activism, this kind of idea of legislating from the bench can work as, as both, you know, a liberal thing as well as a conservative thing. It just kind of depends on who your party is, who you represent, what ideas you have. But long story short, if we're looking at the Supreme court the Supreme Court does fall a lot on this idea of precedent. And Hertzler, what is precedent?
1: Uh, it's just this idea of, you know, what has came before. Uh, the court is always going to take a look back at, at other rulings, and they're either going to use the precedent to basically justify decisions to keep things the same way, or they're going to use their precedent to like I said, both both decisions are important. That the majority and the dissenting opinion. Sometimes the dissenting opinion in a different court with different justices, they might agree with the dissenting opinion. And 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 so so precedent is is very important to how judges make their decisions, especially when you have court cases like Plessy versus Ferguson and then Brown versus Board of Education. You know, the precedent of of Plessy versus Ferguson is kind of, you know, separate but equal. This idea that that we are going to have segregation. And then the the precedent moving forward in in Brown versus Board is going to be, you know, this is wrong. Right. So, so so you use precedent throughout history to make changes.
0: Yeah. And, and that's an important point you bring up. You know, the Supreme Court likes to hang their hats on precedent most of the time, but Oftentimes, you do have cases where precedent has to be reset, it has to be overturned uh, in order to kind of move things forward productively. And the Plessy versus Ferguson being the precedent, you know, that's a really good example of, you know, it's not good precedent. You know, when you get into the 1950s and you still have segregated schools, they've seen that schools separated by race are by definition not equal. Uh, and, and by actuality, we're going to look into that in a future episode, so I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. Um, but you do have those types of cases where even though the Supreme Court likes to say, you know, a decisious, uh, you know, let the decision stand. Oftentimes, the reality of the world that you're living in now does perhaps push you to overturn precedent, even if it's based on years and years and years of, of set precedent that has existed before. So speaking of looking back, Herzler, let's go back to the very beginning uh, and and the origins for the Supreme Court. We mentioned before how the Supreme Court was written into Article 3 of the Constitution. It didn't really seem like it was going to be all that important. I mean, when the Supreme Court's first created by the Judiciary Act of 1789, there were six justices. You can't, can't really disagree with six people. That's not very fun. They looked at it as like, this isn't English soccer. We got to figure out how to make this non-tieable. That's right. There's a lot of debate when the Supreme Court, the idea of the Supreme Court's first created is, you know, this is going to be dangerous. This is scary. This is This is creating this super powerful branch of unelected people that can't be replaced, can't, you know, can't have their decisions be questioned until perhaps many, many years later. These are some of the issues that anti-federalists are having when the Supreme Court and the Constitution overall are being proposed for the government back in the 1780s. Again, we go back to the very beginning in this class a lot because understanding the context of the time is significant.
1: Well, we're so, using precedent from from history to... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
0: Uh, so, so we mentioned before, the, the Federalist Papers were all written to kind of assuage these fears and talk about like, hey, these criticisms of the Constitution are overblown. It's really not that big of a deal. We're going to be okay. And in terms of the Supreme Court, there are several... Federalist papers that address the Supreme Court, but perhaps the most famous one is Federalist 78. And Hertzler, what were the main ideas behind Federalist
1: 78? Well, first and foremost, the, the most important part of Federalist 78 is, again, to remind us that the Supreme Court is important, but not to worry. It's not as, as powerful as the other branches. It's just there kind of as a mediator between the other branches of government to make sure that the president... And the legislative branch are doing basically the will of the people. But it also brings in that argument of how long should these justices serve? And and Alexander Hamilton makes a point that these justices should serve a life term or as long as they need to. Yeah, good behavior was the term he used,
0: and it's the term that's in the Constitution. You know, you shall serve for, quote, good behavior, which
1: effectively means... As long as you're as, not breaking the law, you're good. I, as long as you're playing ball. We'll we'll have you as long as we need you. What he says about the court's
0: power is really important to understand. Like he's telling people that your concerns are overblown. And and what he says is the executive not only dispenses the honors but holds the sword of the community. The legislature not only commands the purse but prescribes the rules by which the duties and rights of every citizen are to be granted the judiciary on the contrary has no influence either the sword or the purse no direction either of the strength or of the wealth of the society and can take no active resolution whatsoever it may truly be said to have neither force or will but merely judgment and must ultimately depend on the aid of the executive arm, even for the efficacy of its judgments. So what he's saying there is that the Supreme court has no real power. The Congress gets this fancy power of the purse, which Congress gets the right to borrow money and and tax and spend money. The executive branch has the power of the sword, which is, you know, effectively making sure those laws are enforced, carrying out its actions, so on and so forth. And he says, The judicial branch doesn't have either of these things. They have to depend on the executive branch to even get their authority enforced, which brings us to our last point. And one of the reasons Federalist 78 offers kind of this Hamilton being a Notre Dame type figure here uh, is he, he brings up this idea about what the Supreme Court should be used for. And even though this language isn't specifically written into the Constitution, it's definitely something that some of the founding fathers like Hamilton probably had in mind when he was thinking about the Supreme Court, and that is judicial review.
1: Well, the idea of judicial review is just that the the, the Supreme Court is going to analyze everything that is being created, um, you know, by the legislative branch. And the Supreme Court is there to make sure that, you know, this is their check and balance. They're making sure that everything that that is made is going to be constitutional or not. So it's just this this double check of making sure everything is created fairly for the people by the government. Yeah, that idea of constitutionality is what's
0: really important to walk away with with judicial review, assuming that any of the laws go to litigation, you know, if they're challenged in court, The court system and ultimately the Supreme Court makes the final decision on whether or not that law is following the Constitution, which is the law of the land. And speaking of the concept of judicial review, we again have to go back in history and look at one of the very earliest court cases and
1: the most important early court case in our history, which is Marbury versus Madison. You know, our friend Dan Roseman is going to really enjoy us talking about his boy, John Adams, who did wonders for this country. Yeah, Marbury versus Madison is is a great example of of pettiness. John Adams, everybody's favorite early president, is going to lose to Thomas Jefferson in eighteen oh one. And as Crowder mentioned, leaving a legacy of of adding different justices to different positions is important for a president because again, they're there for life. So these justices are going to leave a lasting impact for not only you know John Adams, but but the party that John Adams supports. And one of those jobs is going to go to a man by the name of uh, William Marbury, who was being put in at a district court level. He gets the position justice of the peace. And, you know, he's he's stoked about this. Who wouldn't want to be, you know, named by the president into a position? Um, But the problem is nobody really liked the fact that that John Adams did this. And, and overstepped his bounds of creating these positions. James Madison, who was in charge of handing out the commissions that, that John Adams had created, never got William Marbury, his position. And as anybody who has ever applied for a job or, or, or went to a job interview, when you don't get it, you get a little bit annoyed. And, and William Marbury was, was annoyed that he was promised his position And the position was never delivered to him. So that's going to lead to Marbury suing Madison over this position.
0: Yeah. And the the important thing to understand that just needs to be reiterated here is that this is during the changeover between one presidential administration and another. Thomas Jefferson and John Adams hated each other. Uh, And they were coming from two different political parties. Adams was a Federalist. Thomas Jefferson was a Democratic-Republican. You know, this is George Washington right away saying, hey, guys, we shouldn't make political parties. And almost right away they do. And they're already really at each other's throats. So John Adams knows he's being shown the door. And there is this period of lame. It's called a lame duck session, which lasted from late November all the way until March at this point in time. And during that entire time. John Adams is still in power, but he knows Thomas Jefferson is coming. His goal is to really try to screw over Thomas Jefferson as much as he can by filling these judicial appointments with Federalist judges, people who are going to disagree with Thomas Jefferson and really keep him from doing his job. And and really, they're, they're filling, I think it was about 60 positions as quickly as they can all over the country with these Federalist judges.
1: Even creating some new positions.
0: John Marshall who was the secretary of state under John Adams is actually given the new chief justice position on the supreme court that had recently become open. Adams and his people are really busy at work trying to get as many of his cronies named into these positions as possible. And when Thomas Jefferson and, and James Madison walk in early March of 1801, they're probably wondering, you know, what the heck happened here there are all these commissions that have gone out and there are a few commissions sitting on the desk of the new secretary of state, James Madison. We can only assume that William Marbury's is one of these commissions that is sitting on his desk. And for all we know, ended up being ash in the department of state's chimney. So William Marbury sues Madison. And so you're facing a potential crisis here of the constitution because John Marshall, who's the new chief justice of the Supreme Court, realizes that he's going to have a standoff with Thomas Jefferson, who is a member of a different political party than his own. And as we mentioned with Federalist 78, the president is in charge of enforcing the law of the country, whether it coming directly from the legislative branch or whether it's a power that's essentially ruled on by... The judicial branch, those also have to be enforced and carried out by the president. If Marshall hands Thomas Jefferson a decision that Jefferson doesn't like, you face this idea of the president just saying, Oh, yeah, what are you going to do about it? Right.
1: Andrew Jackson, most famously with Indian removal, the Supreme Court, John Marshall was the Supreme Court justice, told Andrew Jackson, This is unconstitutional. You cannot remove the Native Americans from the southeast mainly the Cherokee in the North Carolina Tennessee area and Andrew Jackson looked at John Marshall and said come at me yeah. I don't I don't have to listen to you you know I have the power to enforce your rulings and I don't agree with this one so it doesn't matter what the Supreme Court says I'm I'm going to do whatever I want to and the Native Americans were sent out to Oklahoma yeah. Indian Removal Act was cast down in the Supreme Court, but it happened anyway
0: because the Supreme Court can't make things happen. Uh, but back to this original decision uh, of Marbury versus Madison, you know, I have a couple of issues come up. You know, one, was Marbury's appointment even valid to begin with? Two, is there a way that Marbury can have his grievances fixed, Right. And the third issue, and really the issue that's going to be most important when we're kind of looking at this case overall, is whether or not the Supreme Court even has the right to hear this case. So let's look at these decisions and what Marshall decided in his decision. He says that, yes, Marbury's appointment was valid. We can't produce physical evidence that Marbury's appointment existed but John Marshall wrote it, you know, he knows full well that it existed at one point in time. And so very quickly, that was an argument that Madison and his people didn't pursue very long. Um, So yeah, Marbury's appointment was valid. It was a commission. It was signed by the president. It just had not been received by him. Next, is there a way that Marbury is properly airing out his grievances, getting it fixed? And, And Marshall court ruled yes. The writ of mandamus, which is effectively something you would deliver to James Madison and say, hey, do your job, is something that the Supreme Court and Marbury could pursue happening. But there's a really big technicality here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and it's really interesting what that that technicality is. Um, The fact that they believe that, that the Supreme Court really doesn't have much say in this because conflict of interest and that basically this case, to, to, you know, you know, changed the Supreme court. And and you know, some people felt like they should be ruling on that. And that's where this court case kind of falls apart for Marbury and, and basically where the court, the, the case kind of comes to an end. Yeah. I mean, if you're reading the decision for the
0: first You know, two thirds of it, you're probably thinking this Marbury guy is going to win. But the technicality is that Section 13 of the Judiciary Act of 1789, which gave the Supreme Court the jurisdiction to hear a case such as Marbury's, it actually conflicted with Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution. Marshall looked very closely at the Judiciary Act as well as the Constitution. He looked at them side by side, and there are only very few instances that are defined in the Constitution as giving the Supreme Court original jurisdiction. And based on Marshall's understanding, this Section 13 of the Judiciary Act was not one of them. So by the very idea that Marbury effectively went to the wrong court, the Supreme Court could not issue the writ of mandamus because the law that says the Supreme Court should do it in this instance is unconstitutional. And that establishes for the very first time this precedent of judicial review in which the Supreme Court can look at laws and determine their constitutionality.
1: It's also important to take a look at here. We talked about the court set up in, in the United States with Crowder saying that Marbury went to the wrong court. Since he went to the Supreme Court right away, that it's over. There's, there's no chance to appeal. Um, court cases cannot go down the, the, the jurisdiction ladder, right? If, if it starts at the Supreme Court, supremacy clause dictates that that's the supreme law of the land. Whatever they say goes, um, there's no chance to appeal. If he would have started at a district level, there might have been a chance that there would have been a more favorable decision for him. And even if not, it could still go up the ladder of the appellate system. But Marshall issued a very shrewd
0: decision because even though it temporarily weakened the court by saying, hey, we don't have the right to actually issue this, this writ of mandamus, it actually is a, a, a wise decision because overall the decision of the Supreme Court is favorable to Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. These are decisions that Thomas Jefferson is ultimately going to make sure happens. He's not going to directly defy the Supreme Court right off the bat.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He plays ball with with Marshall's decision, which is important, especially moving forward. Like I said, you're still going to have historical examples where the president's not going to listen to the Supreme Court, but it does set a precedent moving forward. There's that word again,
0: even though it looks like the Supreme Court has really lost this battle by saying, hey, William Marbury, you really should have won this case. But, you know, you didn't. Thomas Jefferson, his folks are right. John Marshall and the Supreme Court really do kind of win the war here because they established this idea of judicial review, which goes on to be probably the most fundamental power that the Supreme Court has moving forward.
1: So now we finally have some shape of what the Supreme Court does. Thanks, thanks Founding Fathers. Thanks for making this so complicated. When we get to this
0: last little debatable section of our show, Maybe some of the same questions that we had before. Is, is the Supreme Court potentially too powerful? How do we feel about lifetime appointments on the Supreme Court? Is the Supreme Court above politics? And maybe a hot button issue that's maybe more recent is what, what precedent exists for changing the composition of the Supreme Court, perhaps adding a few more justices? Let's start with that very first question is what, what do you think about the power of the Supreme court? Has the court gotten too
1: powerful? I don't know if the Supreme court has become too powerful. I think the tool of the Supreme court has become too powerful for the executive branch, you know, using it to kind of bend their will, you know, thinking about the appointment of, of judges here recently, all been about, like you said, Young judges who are going to be there for a long time that are going to make decisions for your party. So, yes, Supreme Court justices have a lot of power with their lifetime appointments. But I would like to argue that the power of the Supreme Court being used as a tool is is kind of the controversial issue here. I
0: generally agree with what you're saying, but I think on the flip side of that, you could make the case that isn't this just a strategy or a loophole the executive branch has seized on more recently than ever before? I mean, why would you name somebody to the Supreme Court if they're only going to be there for 10 years? You know, why would you not try to name somebody who has a long lasting impact to kind of continue your legacy long after your presidency has come to an end?
1: Basically, the point is just using it as that tactic.
0: Yeah. And there's a point to be said in terms of the power of the Supreme Court in that, you know, these are unelected people. They serve for life. They can't have their decisions challenged except for in the rare instance that there's a future Supreme Court decision that that reverses. Uh, and that doesn't never happen, but it, it, it might take several generations for it, yeah, too, look, especially if you're looking at Plessy yeah. versus Brown. I I do think there's merit to the idea that the Supreme Court might be a really powerful branch. But on the flip side, I do have to agree with Hamilton that ultimately the Supreme Court is only as powerful as the executive branch really allows it to be. What are your thoughts on lifetime appointments?
1: Yeah, that is the the big issue now with the Supreme, Supreme Court, isn't it? Especially just, you know, politics in general is, you know, a lot of people are getting tired of older generational people running running government so lifetime appointments are interesting because you know especially when you're talking about your judicial philosophy i feel like a lot of judges moving in early maybe Um, trying to progress society moving forward, trying to say, Hey, there's is some open interpretation, but as they get older, you know, kind of like our political ideology changes, maybe they become more judicial restraint. You know, this is how it was when I was first here. Um, So let, let's restrain ourselves really, you know, grasp this idea of the constitution can't be changed. So I would argue that lifetime appointments aren't that great um, because Philosophies change over time and their viewpoints could change. Sometimes it can change for the positive. Sometimes it'll change for the negative.
0: Yeah. Just to argue, to maybe play devil's advocate with that idea, though. One of the things that Hamilton argues in Federalist 78 is the idea that, look, there are only so many people who are suited to take on this position of a Supreme Court justice or a federal judge in general. You know, you have to dedicate years of your life to understanding the law inside and out. You have to dedicate years of your life to looking at and understanding and applying the Constitution in a way that's favorable with the American Bar Association and other judges and and senators and so on and so forth. And ultimately, the number of people that can qualify just based on those merits alone Start really filtering out the grand number of people in this country of, uh, we'll call them armchair activists who don't necessarily put in the work, but just have really strong opinions one way or the other. The amount of work and time that goes into being a really good judge that would even be considered by the Supreme Court, you you would almost have to have the lifetime appointment as Almost almost like a reward for the types of people who would have to fully commit themselves to the law to the degree that they would be recognized for that position. So Hertzler, here's, you know, we're getting more and more down these kind of hot button issues. What do you think? Is the Supreme
1: Court above politics? I think so, mainly with the idea of these aren't elected officials. You know, we talk about it all the time. Constitutionally, If we don't like our representatives in the House or in the Senate, we have the opportunity to vote them out and putting people in power that are going to do the will of the people. So in that case, democratically, yes, I feel like Supreme Court justices are above politics because they don't have to campaign. They don't have to bend to the will of the people because there's no consequences if they do something that the people don't like.
0: Yeah, uh, to to – almost reinforce that point exactly, you know, you you don't have to bear the brunt of controversial choices, controversial decisions. It's one of those things that I think you and I have argued almost exhaustively that the Senate, the House of Representatives, especially, they don't really like to make controversial choices and decisions. And so oftentimes I feel like a lot of laws are even created that will just immediately be taken to the Supreme Court uh, through litigation, working up the court system through district appellate and so on and so forth. It's almost as if some of those really tough decisions they leave to the judges uh ultimately to decide these types of things because they don't want to make the tough choices early on. And because of the fact that you don't have Supreme court justices running for election or re-election. you know, ultimately their decisions be it good or bad uh, are, are ones that they can, you know, sit back and essentially be out of public, uh, I guess that public scrutiny is not fair because that's definitely still there. But yeah, they are not,
1: scrutinized all the whole time.
0: Definitely. Um, but they're not going to pay pay the price for making those
1: decisions at the ballot box. Correct. Because again, you don't you don't vote for Supreme Court justices. Yeah, but but on that very same point.
0: Isn't the process for naming Supreme Court justices, isn't that inherently political? Isn't that a way of injecting politics into an otherwise, at least in theory, non-political position?
1: I mean, yes and no. We do elect the president who then appoints our Supreme Court justices, but we don't know what his shortlist is. We don't get a say in who he's going to appoint. So he may appoint someone that vastly differs than the people that are voting him in. So so again, we don't get a say. We don't even get a say in the confirmation of said Supreme Court justice. We just have to deal with the situation that the president presents us.
0: But it does seem that presidents who make Supreme Court nominations along political lines are going to be much more supported by their party if you don't have a divided government. The Senate is almost a rubber stamp for the president to name in any type of candidate. Uh, and and maybe it's become more like that over time, uh, especially in the last you know 40 or 50 years, where the Senate is just meant to basically be a rubber stamp for the president. And it's not necessarily designed to be that way. It's just perhaps how it's gotten to that point. And in divided government, it's one of those, it's it's even worse. Like this could be a fantastic, wonderful judge who has made a number of really good decisions based on their interpretations of the constitution. But if they're not from your political ideology, you stand against them 100%. Like I do think that's inherently flawed in injection of political process uh, in this Supreme Court nomination.
1: And even going as far as that is the interest groups playing a big role. Sure. It could be something that it could be a person that people agree with the president's pick, but an interest group playing a big role and getting that person borked is not the will of the people. So it doesn't feel political there either.
0: But just to reemphasize the point of politics getting in the way of this nomination process is again, again, I want to return to the idea that Supreme Court justices were routinely passed uh, by bipartisan support, you know, 60-40. It used to be 60 votes were required to pass the justice, and I could only imagine how few people
1: would get named to any courts today if that were still the case. Especially considering the fact that Senate is 50-50, basically, at this point. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. You have to find 10 more votes, guys.
0: Yeah, but that's not the case anymore due to um, a, a rule change that Harry Reid, the Democratic leader, pulled in you know Obama's years in office to make it only 51 votes. Before it used to be 60, and even with 60 being the threshold, people would vote. You know, even this, even though this judge doesn't necessarily reflect my viewpoints, they are a good judge. And I think we have lost that a little bit as politics has become more and more interjected into the nomination process.
1: Yeah, as a judge, you're supposed to be fair. But as we move forward, you know, fairness has nothing to do with it. It's it's what the will of the party almost.
0: So last question, just as we're getting more and more perhaps controversial here. What about increasing the size of the Supreme Court? You know, if... Let's say Joe Biden, who is a Democratic president with an overwhelmingly conservative court. The current composition of the court is 6-3. Why not just expand
1: the court, name a couple of
0: justices so you get the advantage
1: in votes? Well, first of all, if we're going to take a look at precedent, you know, this has been tried before and actually been struck down by the Supreme Court. FDR tried to do this during the Great Depression era what did what did he try to so he, tried, we he tried he tried he tried to, to go, go to 15. 15 yeah oh six justices he was going to appoint that is just just crazy to think yeah so, but
0: the, the idea, it's called court packing and the idea yeah. is that you just you just put a bunch of people who are like-minded like-minded yep like-minded into the position uh and then all of a sudden the supreme court decisions that you were used to be losing 5-4 you know you're going to be winning man what would it be 105 you 10, know 105 now yeah. like you're going to then have a really strong concentration on the supreme court and you wouldn't lose those positions um you know but aside from that when you're talking about precedent if we look back at the very beginning of the supreme court and when it was when it was created you know there were six justices so clearly the supreme court has changed over time So the Judiciary Act of 1801 reduced the number of justices from six to five, should there be disputes in the office. In 1807, not too long after that Marbury versus Madison decision, Congress actually chose to increase the number of justices on the Supreme Court to seven, and it was, quote, in response to the geographic expansion of the nation and the increased caseload of the district courts in the West. And this act established the Seventh Circuit consisting of Ohio, Kentucky, and Tennessee, and specified new justices are to be assigned to preside over the U.S. Circuit Court within that circuit. So, you know, you have the number of circuit courts, the appellate courts expanding. You have the number of Supreme Court justices expanding in almost a direct result of that. In 1837, you have several new circuits, the Eighth and Ninth Circuits, created Uh, and bringing two new Supreme Court justices to the Supreme Court as well. So, you know, it's almost as if for a while there was a precedent to keep the Supreme Court justices, even with the number of circuit courts that exist in the country. Uh, So if we were going on that number, you know, there, there are 13 today. You could theoretically say there is precedent to expand the court to, let's say, 13 Supreme Court justices. Uh, Further acts that have impacted the court over time, the 10th Circuit was created, which actually added uh, up to a a 10th member of the Supreme Court. So for a while, just a few years, actually, we had 10 members on the Supreme Court, which is, again, an even number. There's some potential issues there, so on and so forth. But that's later fixed in the judicial acts of 1866, which reduced the number to seven, and then the Judiciary Act of 1869, which increased it nine, and it's been nine ever since 1869. You could make the argument that if we're keeping with precedent in the past, the Supreme Court justices have never been fixed on nine uh, up until 1869. You know, it was never a fixed number, uh, and and if we're going further on precedent, you could make the case that. The Supreme Court justices had in the past reflected the number of uh, appellate courts in the country, so if we're going on that, you could make the case for it to be up to thirteen. I don't think it will ever happen because this is something that's going to need to pass Congress. You know, Congress, and, yeah.
1: You know, we, we're just talking about you know Supreme Court justices being a political issue, um, always having divided government. It's going to take a a unified government to, to pass this, but um, I, I just don't see it happening anytime in the future. So it's clear that over time, the Supreme Court has expanded beyond what
0: the Founding Fathers tended to maybe see as kind of the throwaway of the three branches to being a pretty significant branch, maybe not the most powerful, but maybe depending on, on how you feel about the Supreme Court. And ultimately, the decisions the Supreme Court makes are ones that stick around and the justices that serve in the Supreme court have a lasting legacy on American history, which can make the case for the Supreme court being one of the most important branches of government. Thank you very much for listening.
1: Just a quick reminder. Um, if you want to follow us, we're on Instagram. Uh, we are also on TikTok. We make fun little videos that, that that are educational, but also enjoyable to watch. Uh, Remember, you can listen to the GovGuys podcast on Spotify, Amazon podcast, and Apple podcasts. Pretty much anywhere
0: you can listen to podcasts, we're there. So thank you once again for everyone tuning in, everyone listening. We hope this has been helpful for those who have used this as a study tool. uh, We encourage you to keep listening. We're trying to stay ahead of the class for that exact reason. This is our third podcast that we've recorded like this month, so we're really trying to to, to pump these out quickly uh, so that you guys have some
1: extra study tools uh, in, in your arsenal. All right, guys. Y'all have a great evening, and we'll see you guys later. Yeah. Good night.